Find your way to Micah. One of the minor prophets, Micah. Chapter 5, 1 to 5. And while you do that, let's pray. Father, Father, as every preacher who's ever stood should be able to say, I'm unworthy to open my mouth and speak your truth. For none of this orients from any man, or wisdom of man, human ingenuity, cleverness, all those things ultimately are powerless and will be forgotten and should be forgotten. But your word that you sent has power to awaken consciences, to give life to dead hearts and souls, and seeing to blind eyes. So open our eyes this morning to see Jesus and Him only. And not just to see Him as a fact to be examined, but that our hearts would be awakened to a love of Him and a trust of Him for who He is, that we would bring our burdens and cast them upon Him, that we would come without hope and gain hope through Him, that we would come lacking righteousness and find our righteousness and joy and peace and all in Him. So reveal Jesus to us now and throughout this season. For it is in Your name we pray. Amen. Micah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. The prophet writes, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is the word of the Lord. The book of Micah is not the best known of books in the Bible. Some of you may have had to search for it just now, being tucked away among the minor prophets. But if there's any one verse that people have heard, it's this one about the promised king from Bethlehem. Uh, Micah 5.2 is world famous for it, the part that it plays in the Christmas story. Uh, you remember how wise men came from the east in Matthew 2 verse 2 saying, Where is he? who is born King of the Jews. And the priests knew the answer. They'd read Micah's prophecy. And so they quote this verse, In Bethlehem of Judah, for this is what was written in the prophet. And so here we have the promise of God written 700 years before Christ, telling us not only where He will be born, but who He will be 
what He came to do so that as we look at God's promise to Bethlehem, we need to see Jesus and who He is as we consider the advent of Christ. So the first thing that I want you to see here is why it is that Micah says we need a king to begin with. Why do we need this king, this ruler to come? And it's because of the utter failure of human leadership. And so we need, to, we need to go back and put some things in perspective. You understand that no passage of Scripture just drops out of heaven by itself. It's always surrounded by a context. It's part of a larger story, and we could really go back and, and make this long, but I just want to focus in on the immediate context within uh, Micah's writing itself. So just turn back or flip back to chapter 4, verse 9. That should be far enough to at least get us going here. As Micah is writing this prophecy, he is really concerned about what's happening in his own day. Uh, The kingdom of Judah had fallen into a period of terrible decline that will ultimately lead to its destruction. Why? Why is it in such a bad shape? Well, because of their sin to be sure, but but, but more, more, more urgently now, because the leaders themselves have failed to lead the people in righteousness which was the leader's main job. The kings, as descendants of David, were called to be men who led the people in faithfulness to God. But they have failed miserably. And because they have failed at job one, God is bringing destruction upon the nation. And so read with me chapter 4, verse 9, as he begins to describe the destruction that is coming. Chapter 4, verse 9, he speaks to Jerusalem. He's He's going to call Jerusalem Zion one of its nicknames because of the hill that it's on. And he says, Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain has seized you like a woman in labor? In fact, now he's going to picture Jerusalem as a woman who is in deep trouble, who is in anguish because no one is protecting her and her enemies are ravaging her. Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out of the city and dwell in the opening country and you shall go to Babylon. There's an exile coming, an utter destruction of your land and you're going to be carried away to faraway Babylon. But there's always this glimmer of hope. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Exile's coming, but it's not final. God's plan will continue to work. But for now, you're in big trouble. Verse 11, Now... Many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. Strip her bare, throw her in the dirt, kick her around a little bit, because we have come to humiliate and destroy her. Jerusalem, or again Zion as she is called, is pictured as a woman in trouble. A woman who has no husband to care for her, no one to protect for her against those who seek to harm and destroy her, just as Israel itself has no king. Oh, well, perhaps that's not completely accurate. She has a king at this time, but he's a, he's a pretty worthless king. He, he's too weak, too inept, too distracted even to defend her. And so the prophet says in chapter 5, verse 1, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. They're coming for us. 
and with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. The judge of Israel, that's what he's calling the king here. And her king is so weak and helpless. Micah doesn't even bother to call him a king. He demotes him to a judge and pictures him as being unable even to protect his own face from the humiliation of being struck on the cheek. In the ancient world, that's how you humiliated a man. You hit him in the face. And if he was a man, he'd fight back. If he was a wimp, he'd cower. And her defenseless king cowers. He just stands there, hands limped at his side, while the walls of the city are scaled by the enemy, and the city begins to fall. I mean, what a pathetic picture of a wimpy, inept leader. Uh, One of our brothers uh, called this uh, an effeminate slackness. Here is the king. God's man, God's champion, the one charged with the protection and leadership of the nation, called to protect her, called to defend her, and he can't even defend himself. So he stands there again, arms limp at his side, and lets the enemy humiliate him. So the women... Notice that verse 1. The women are called to man the defenses. Muster yourselves, girls. Get it together. Grab the armaments. Go to the wall. Someone's got to defend us. If they won't, will you... Well, you understand that in an ancient world of hand-to-hand combat, of battle axes and swords and shields, uh, the women as your defenders is a disaster. I'm not saying anything negative about women. It's just a fact of nature, right? Uh, when you got when you got 200-pound men crawling over that wall with a battle axe, a 110-pound girl is not going to do much. And so not only was it a disaster, it was also a humiliation for, for men in that warrior culture to stand behind women as their defenders because they're too wimpy to do so. It's humiliating. It's shameful. That's, that's, the, that's what you're supposed to see in what he's saying here. It is a picture of the utter failure of manhood, of the, of the failure of leaders, of the failure of the kings to reign. The government has failed at its chief duty. And that's what has happened to Jerusalem in those final days under its last wimpy and worthless kings. Read 1 Kings. Read uh, 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles. Micah foresees how the lack of godly leadership is going to lead to the destruction of the nation in 586 B.C. And of course, we could understand that's still an issue today, isn't it? We still see the same kind of weakness and neglect in our homes and our communities across this land. An evacuation of, of, of manhood. In many cases, quite literally, where there, where there simply is no man in the home at all. No dad to teach and protect and guide, or, or perhaps a dad who is physically present but spiritually non-existent. I saw another article this week, and they come out pretty regularly. One more study making clear once more that kids need dads. They need good men who are active and involved in their lives. Men who will lead and love and discipline and guide. And where that is lacking, the stats are off the charts about how that lack impacts homes, neighborhoods, nations. Um, It's just a fact of life in this fallen world. It is often the failure of God-appointed men to man up and lead that brings the destruction of nations, neighborhoods, churches, families. 
And as a result of that very failure, the nation of Jerusalem will fall in 586 B.C., just as Micah predicts here. Babylon will destroy the city and carry the people into exile. Most of David's heirs will be slaughtered. And Zedekiah, the last pitiful king of David's line, will be bound, blinded, and led away as a slave to Babylon where he will die. Jerusalem will fall. Because God's men failed to lead in righteousness. But here's the good news. God isn't done yet. And that is not the last word that we get to hear because that brings us to the next thing and that is the promise. The promise of God to send a true king, a righteous leader to lead His people. That's where verse 2 comes in. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Notice that first word in verse 2. But, don't skip those little words. How often has God interjected this but to indicate a radical change of grace? Ephesians 2 verse 4, We were dead in trespasses and sins, But God, because of His great love with which He loved us, made us alive together with Christ. 2 Corinthians 7, Paul says, I was distressed and afflicted, but God, who comforts the depressed, comforted me. The proud rulers of Jerusalem have failed. The arm of the flesh has been shattered. The very best that man can do lies broken and bleeding on the ground. But God doesn't need the high and mighty. God will work salvation for Himself. God will raise up for Himself a ruler, not out of Jerusalem, but out of tiny Bethlehem down the road. Isaiah 63.5 is uh, like many places where it says, where God says, I looked, but there was no one to help. There was no one I could depend upon. I was appalled that there was no one to uphold, so my own arm brought salvation for me. Notice some of the things that this promised ruler who comes from God is going to be. First of all, we're told that he is going to be insignificant in his beginning. It says he'll be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, of all places. Do you know about Bethlehem in those days? At the time of the prophets? Do you know about it? Is it a big place? Fancy? That people go there for vacation? No, no, no. Little Bethlehem was a nowhere. A podunk little town. We were talking about it one like it today. They don't even have a stoplight. Dollar General won't even put a store in there. Nothing there but sheep and shepherds and a few historical markers scattered about because, oh, it did have an important place in history, right? A poor widow named Ruth had immigrated there in the dark days of the judges. She and her mother-in-law, Naomi, moved to Bethlehem from Moab, her home nation, after the death of their husbands. This is Ruth chapter 1 if you want to check it out later. And in the wonderful providence of God, she met and married a good man named Boaz who agreed to become her kinsman redeemer, the one whose, whose very life would bring her out of poverty and in this case bring her into the covenant with God. 
And God blessed them and God was good to them. And she had a son who had a son who had another son whom was named David. And David became Israel's greatest king. But that was 300 years before Micah's day. History has moved on. David and his family have long since left Bethlehem behind for Jerusalem. Bethlehem is largely forgotten. And so Micah emphasizes how insignificant Bethlehem has become. Again, he says that that it is too small even to be listed among the clans of Judah. Now that, that literally happened. Joshua chapter 15, even way back then, they took a census of all the towns in Judah. 115 of those towns are listed in the Old Testament. Bethlehem doesn't even make the list. It'd be like if you were listing all the towns in the St. Louis area. Would you think to add Grubville? Or how about Didmer? Unless you live there, right? They don't even register. They're not on the map. So obscure, in fact, Micah has to tell us which Bethlehem he even means. There were lots of little towns with that name. It means house of bread. And so since they're just like in the U.S., there are many little cities called Farrington. Little farming communities. And so he specifies this. No, I mean Bethlehem Ephrathah. Bethlehem the Bountiful. You know, that little farming community six miles south of Jerusalem. And yet it is to this tiny, insignificant little place that God Himself will come to earth. Have you noticed how God loves to bypass that which we consider great and impressive here on earth? in order to make use of that which is weak and worthless in the eyes of man. Uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.27, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. For all of its pomp and pageantry as the capital city, the the city of kings, Jerusalem has failed. And God, as He so often does, rejects the mighty and powerful to take hold of the weak and despised and to work His salvation in the most unexpected of places so that no one may boast before the Lord. Which brings us into the next thing, and that is to notice that this king, this promised king from this tiny little place, will be ancient in his origin. Verse 2 continues, From you will come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Three things to notice here. First of all, this king will come forth from God. He comes forth for me. He comes forth from me. In other words, other words he's, he's not just uh, some Johnny-come-lately Savior wannabe who shows up out of nowhere. Uh, the failure of David's descendants didn't catch God off guard. God had a plan that He was putting into play. He shall come forth from me. He shall step out of eternity just as Jesus has said in John 6.38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but to do the will of Him who sent me. He will come forth from God and as He comes forth from God His ancestry will be ancient. Ancient. 
The failure of David's descendants uh, hasn't caught God off guard, as I said. No, no. God has been working on this project for ages. He, he, planned, he, he planned it out. He planted these seeds long ago, and now it is all coming to fruition. You remember how God promised David an eternal heir back in 2 Samuel 7, 12-13. He said to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, when you die, I will raise up your offspring, your offspring, literally your seed. Do you remember the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head? I will raise up your seed after you who will come from your body. I will establish His kingdom. He shall build a house for My name and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. And now Micah uses this same kind of language here in Micah 5.2. Again, the point is God's going to do this. What God promised David way back then, He assures Micah He is still bringing about. And so it says, He, His coming forth, His origin, His ancestry is from of old all the way back to David so that the promise that God has made David 300 years earlier about an heir who will reign forever, that's still in play. A descendant of David will come. Was Jesus a descendant of David? Well, yes. Uh, both through his mother Mary, as Luke says, and through his legal earthly father Joseph, according to Matthew's genealogy. And yet, isn't it interesting to see how far the line of David had fallen by the time of Jesus? The great king's descendants are in near poverty, far from Jerusalem, in Nazareth of all places, unheralded, unnoticed by the nation. So poor, they they really can't even afford a room in Bethlehem. The heir will be born in a borrowed manger. And yet this king will come from David's ancient line. Don't you love fulfilled prophecy? And not only that, it says this king will not only be old in his genealogy going back to David, this king will be older still than that. He will be from the literally days of eternity. Look at that again in verse 2. Whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Uh, New American Standard renders that more literally from days of eternity. The the Hebrew word there is olam. Same word uh, we find in places like Psalm 90 verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed this earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, from olam to olam, you are God. So this is, this is no mere human descendant of David. This is not a, a distant cousin who, who came down from him somehow. This is David's Lord who existed long before David from eternity and has reigned forever as the Son of God. Okay, how can that be? How can the descendant of David be David's Lord? Well, that's the very question Jesus will throw out at the Pharisees when they were badgering Him just to blow their minds. Uh, Luke chapter 20, verse 41, He said to them after they'd asked a series of questions, Okay, so how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, Psalm 110.1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? (laughs) That only makes sense when you understand that this royal descendant is more than just a man. 
that He is indeed the God-man. The only way to untie this knot that Jesus puts before the Pharisees is to understand what theologians call the two natures of Christ. That He is truly and fully God and truly and fully man. God incarnate is man. The Word made flesh to dwell among us. And so Christ is fully man, a descendant of David, born into this world through the womb of the Virgin. And He is fully God, having existed from all eternity as God the Son. That's that's the shocking thing Micah points to here. That God has become man and come to rule. That our failure as men and women is so complete that only God Himself can set things right. That God must restore David's broken throne in order to restore what our sin has broken. And that brings us into the third thing that we need to see here, and that is just to see the majesty and the glory of this promised coming King. Verse 3, Therefore, He, that is God, shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of His brothers, now speaking of the Messiah, shall return to the people of Israel. And He, Christ, shall stand and shepherd His flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord His God, and they shall dwell secure. For now He shall be great to the ends of the earth, and He shall be their peace. Of course, it's, it's a prophetic prediction, is it not? Verse 3, He says, God will give them up. He'll give up the nation of Israel for a time. He'll, he'll send them away into exile uh, when they will have no king. Did that happen? Oh yeah, David's line was broken in 586 B.C. and it remained broken for another 500 years. During that time, no descendant of David sat upon the throne of Israel. And honestly, that was a mystery to the people of Israel. That was more than a mystery. That was a crisis of faith. How can God let this lineage be broken? I mean, He made promises to David where is the fulfillment of His promises. Has God failed to be faithful? They were asking things like that. Psalm 89.33, written during that time, asks that question. Psalm 89.33 says, God's promise was, I will not remove from David my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. Great promises. But then the psalmist says, But but now you have cast us off and rejected us. Now you're full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant uh, with your servant. You have defiled His crown in the dust. I mean, what's up with that, God? Where's your promise? You ever felt like that? And then one night, in Bethlehem, a cry is heard, and the woman who was in labor gave birth to a child. And though few knew it at the time, the long-promised king had come. Isaiah, which we read earlier, 
says that unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The promise is being kept. Listen to me. God keeps His promises. No word of His will ever fail. How do we know that? Look at Jesus and you will see every promise of God is yes and amen. Look at other stuff. Take your eyes off Him. You'll have all kinds of questions and frustrations. You'll lose your faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And you'll see that God keeps His Word, that God restores what sin has broken, that God saves His people who cannot possibly save themselves. So there are then a series of promises here that Micah says will flow out of this ruler that God sends. First of all, it says that he will stand. Verse 4. He will stand and shepherd his flock. He will not falter or fail, it means. That word stand uh, means to, to endure with strength. To, to never fail. Unlike all these other kings and every government we've ever tried to put our hope in, will fail, does fail, is destined to fail. This king's administration will never come to an end. He will reign in righteousness forever. Just as the angel assures Mary. Luke 1.32 He will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to Him the throne of His father David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of His kingdom there will be no end. He will stand. Second, He will unite the family. Verse 2 says, um, he, oh, verse 3 says, um, He will bring back His brothers. He will bring them to repentance. That word bring back literally pictures a turning and a restoration. His brothers are going to be gathered in. Now, who are his brothers? Boy, we could go a long way around the tree with that one. Let me just give you the, the, the nutshell. Ultimately, we are. Both Jews and Gentiles who repent and believe the Gospel. Uh, Hebrews 2, verse 11 says that He, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, that is, those He redeems, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. He became one of us to unite us to Himself and to one another under His righteous reign. Ephesians 2, verse 19, So then you are no longer... Aliens and strangers, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He'll gather His people. Third, He will shepherd His people. Don't you love this image? Verse 4, He will stand and do what? And shepherd His flock in the strength of the Lord. Again, we see parallels to David, don't we? David was a shepherd. God called him out from behind the sheep 
to become the shepherd of the nation. His job was to lead them in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. His sons were commanded to do the same, but they failed, as we have seen. One after another, they failed. And so because they failed, God removed them from their place of power. Just as He told them He was about to do. Ezekiel 34, 19, He says, I'm against these false shepherds who don't lead My people. I'm going to put a stop to what they're doing. They've blown it. They're gone. And I'm going to step in there Myself. Ezekiel 34, verse 15. I love this language. I Myself, because they failed, I Myself will be the shepherd of My sheep. And I Myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. And I will seek the lost. And I will bring back the strayed. And I will bind up the injured. And I will strengthen the weak. Isn't that exactly what Jesus, the Good Shepherd, says He came to do? Picking up this very language, Jesus says in John 10.14, I am the Good Shepherd. What Good Shepherd? The one Ezekiel's talking about. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for my sheep. Do you understand? Christ is the Davidic shepherd. God promises in the prophets again and again. He is David's heir who has come to gather in His sheep and to make them one flock. He is is the sacrifice that comes and lays down His life to redeem His people and restore them and lead them in righteousness. So that fourth, we see that He will secure us forever in the strength of Almighty God. Notice Micah says that again and again in verse 4. He will stand and shepherd the flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord His God. And they shall dwell secure. They shall dwell secure means forever. Nothing will be able to strip them out of this good shepherd's hand. You remember how Jesus affirmed that very promise. John 10, verse 27, My sheep, are you His sheep? My sheep, they hear My voice. I know them and they follow Me. And I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one shall snatch them out of My hand. No one. No one. Why? Because the shepherd who holds your life does so with an infinite power that no one can break. One that will never slip or give out. He will never lose control. He'll never fumble the ball. Nothing can take you out of His hand if you are His by grace through faith. How do we know that? Well, because, Micah says, it is the very omnipotent hand of Yahweh Himself that holds you. Notice that in verse 4. Pay attention to the all caps. uh, Twice over. Uh, he, He says, that He will shepherd in the strength of the L-O-R-D, the strength of Yahweh. In the majesty of the name of L-O-R-D, Yahweh His God, He will do this. The hand that holds you is the infinite hand 
of the ancient, eternal Yahweh Himself. The sovereign, knowable God. The King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. And if that is the hand that holds you, then no force in heaven or earth or below or around or between can separate you from the love of God in Christ. We cast ourselves fully upon that. I love the way I love the way Calvin puts it. I often love the way Calvin puts it. He says, We have a strong and invincible defender. Let us then learn that no less safety is to be expected from Christ than there is of power in God. How powerful is God? Infinitely? That's how safe we are in his hands. Thus we have a king who is sufficiently powerful, who has undertaken to defend us. So there is no reason for us to doubt concerning our safety. Let them throw their darts. Let them shoot their guns. Let them, let them line us up against the wall because what's the worst they can do? Kill us? They cannot take us from His hand. Oh, listen, He secures us with an infinite, almighty power. And so it says, in light of that, His greatness will be seen. He will be glorified to the ends of the earth as our Savior. Look at verse 4 again. It says, They shall dwell secure, we're in His hands, for now He shall be great to the ends of the earth. For now, meaning from now on, He shall be great to the ends of the earth. His glory is going global for this act of salvation. It's no longer restricted to the little nation of Israel. It's globally proclaimed. Habakkuk 2 verse 14. The earth itself will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This, of course, is our missionary directive. This is a missional declaration. His coming into the world set off a glory bomb. Everywhere this gospel now goes, everywhere He sends it through us and those we support and send, His glory is being seen so that people from every nation, tribe, and tongue are being brought home to glorify God and enjoy Him forever with us. And we have a mission to be a part of that. We get to be a part of that. Never forget, God saves us so His glory may be seen through us. And He sends us to declare His salvation to the ends of the earth. That's why we pray. That's why we go. That's why we sacrifice personally and in our giving. That's why we go across the street to talk to our neighbors and send others across the globe to declare Him among those who have never heard. We have such a calling because He is such a Savior. And then finally, this King is our peace. I love this. Just that one line at the end of chapter 5, and probably that's where this thought breaks. And He shall be their peace. Notice that it doesn't say He will give us peace. He will supply us peace. He will bring us peace. It says that He Himself is our peace. Which Paul quotes pretty much verbatim in Ephesians 2.14, for He Himself is our peace. Peace. Or the angels declare to the shepherds, Luke 2.14, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. It is our relationship with Him who came for us that gives us peace. 
Now, what is this peace? I don't just mean a feeling in your heart. I mean reality. First of all, it's peace with God. Romans 5, 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, because we trust Christ for what He has done, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, your long war with God is over. He won. And your sin that was opposed to Him has been conquered. And your rebellion that you were a part of has ended. And you have been welcomed home as a child of His grace. The hostility that God Himself once had against you because of your sin has been put to rest forever in the death and resurrection of Christ so that you and I who were outcasts and aliens from His mercy are now accepted and loved as sons and daughters. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You ought to wake up in the morning and say that and shout a little bit when nobody knows what you're doing. Right? This is reason for shouting. This is encouragement. Second, we have peace with each other. Right? Ephesians 2, 14 and 15, For He Himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one, speaking of Jews and Gentiles, but it means all the divisions of mankind as well. He has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is the peace Christ came to give us. Peace comes through His reign. When my knee is bowed to Him and your knee is bowed to Him and we are at peace with Him, guess what? We're at peace with each other. Peace with God. Peace with one another through faith in the promise of the shepherd king of Bethlehem. Do you know this peace? Do you know this peace? Have you bowed your knee to this King and become His grateful subject, submitted to His Word, submitted to His will, seeking to honor Him. God's promise to Bethlehem has not failed. And it will not fail any who will put their trust in Him. So let's pray. Father, we live in a world at war in so many ways. Real wars taking place right now, people dying, but also other wars without bullets necessarily, but just strife, contention, hatred, culture wars, family wars, personal wars with inner demons. God, all the things that tear us apart and keep us from You, and yet Christ, the Prince of Peace, has come. He has fulfilled the promises. He has put down the rebellion and He has welcomed us into His peace. God, would You grant that peace to the one who looks to You right now, to the one who sees You for who You are, proclaims You for what You've done, and says, Lord Jesus, I surrender everything to You that I may know and walk with You in fellowship with Your people as one of those whom You have claimed and loved. King of Bethlehem, rule over my life. For the sake of your kingdom we pray. Amen.